Jason Turner joins us, Chief Investment Strategist at Wintrust Wealth. Welcome back, Jason. Happy holidays. Happy holidays, John. Yeah. Is this a typical December rally or what normally happens in this month? Well, we do get a bit of a Santa Claus rally some years in the markets, and, and we may have gotten started early with a pretty strong uh, November for stock market for the stock market as well. And I suppose, though, this there are some things that are not typical about this. This is um, maybe happening in large part because of what the Fed has been saying and doing, or are other factors at play? I think the the reaction we've seen here in the markets most immediately is because of of what the Fed is is saying and doing. Are maybe more accurately not doing in terms of not moving rates higher and now adjusting their expectations going forward to be a little bit more benign from an interest rate perspective in 2024 than they had projected back in September. Right. Although I would have thought that that sort of reaction would already be baked in. Nobody thought they were going to raise the rates this time. No, I think we were at a 98 and change percent probability that they weren't going to move the rates up at this meeting. I think the the reaction is, is somewhat the realization that the Fed is moving those summary economic projections, their projections for where inflation and the federal funds rate will end next year and the year after. They've moved those down somewhat, and, and that, I think, has encouraged markets to, to pick up a little steam. So what does this say about Treasuries, then? Well, I think we'll continue to see some of the movement we've recently observed in the Treasury market continue to an extent. The the tenure uh, moving down to where it, it sits today is sending a clear message that, that markets believe uh, the Fed is on a pace with interest rates to continue to uh, decline over the course of the next three years. Uh, really, to get the the uh, the yield to where the, the tenure sits today, you'd need some pretty concerted Fed action over the next few years. Uh, to make that a reality. Yeah. You know, when we started the show today, I actually talked about some good numbers that are in the news. Steve Alexander talked about the fact that the mortgage rate has gone down again. Unemployment is at a decade's low. Markets at or near all-time highs. Inflation is at around 3%, and wages are doing better than inflation. Um, So what's what's the other shoe here? it seems to all be pretty good. Uh, do you want to temper my happiness or do you want to jump on the bandwagon? I think we see a lot more silver lining than gray cloud in the forecast here. Uh, the the gray cloud part would be that growth is going to slow from the, the pace we saw in the third quarter. It's going to slow uh, economic growth in the fourth quarter. will likely continue to slow into the beginning of next year. Uh, there just isn't as much uh, in the tanks from a reserves perspective for the average American consumer uh, because wage growth hasn't been as high, because savings have been spent down, uh, because confidence hasn't rebounded to the extent that we, we saw in 2018 and 2019, uh, we're likely to see a little bit slower economic growth pace next year. The silver lining part, I, I think inflation is actually coming down more than what we're seeing in that headline number, that, that 3% in change that we're seeing in the Fed's preferred PCE measure if we look at the six-month rate of inflation, we're already at the 2% target. We've already slowed if we annualize the last six months uh, down to that 2% target. That, I think, bolsters markets, too, to the idea that uh, the Fed is likely going to need to start cutting rates sooner than they anticipate uh, in their current projections. To the degree that government can make things better or make us feel better about these numbers that I was talking about, do you think that it's a messaging problem on the part of the administration and Congress, or is it a performance problem? Are there some things that they've not been doing that they should be? 
I, from an economic numbers perspective and getting that out to the, the American public on a positive or negative spin, I don't think the government has ever really done a great job of, of communicating there what these numbers actually mean to the average consumer. Uh, consumers are left to interpret that on their own. So you hear inflation is lower. You hear that growth might be slowing, but you hear employment markets are still strong. That should create the confidence on its own uh, without government intervention to right. bolster confidence as we move into next year. And what I want to say is to the degree that that tail wags the dog and therefore people rein in their spending or don't expand their businesses because consumer confidence is low, maybe it shouldn't be so low. Maybe it should be higher. So I go back to that question. Should the government be doing something differently or should they be trying to do a better job of getting it through our thick skulls that things aren't as bad as I hear on the news each night. Yeah, on the consumer side, I don't think that there's much the government can or should be doing to, to bolster the confidence of the American consumer. Uh, certainly not any more fiscal stimulus. I think we've seen the, the inflationary impact of that over the last couple of years. Where I, I think the government can do a better job of communicating and bolstering confidence is in the small business arena. Small businesses in the United States, uh, typically we see between 15 and 25% of the small businesses considering some form of expansion uh, in the coming year. The last measure puts that number at less than 5% of American small businesses are planning on expansion. Interest rates have a lot to do with that. Yeah. As interest rates fall in early 2024, that'll help. But if there is concerted messaging behind that to reinforce confidence for the small business owner, uh, to reinforce the confidence that even at a higher borrowing cost, there's still prospects for growth. That's where some intervention and messaging can can actually move the needle economically. That's interesting. I'm glad you uh, were able to join us today. That's Jason Turner, Chief Investment Strategist, Wintrust Wealth Management. Thanks, Jason. Thank you, John. Bree Fowler is a senior writer at CNET, regularly joins us to update us on the tech scene Bree, the Pope has something to say about AI. Do I read that correctly? Yeah, I, I think everyone is officially weighed in on AI yeah. at this point. Um, he is calling for an international treaty to ensure that the AI is developed and used ethically. Um, he's worried that the risks of the technology, uh, you know, if it lacks human values like compassion, mercy, and morality, and forgiveness, that could be you know, disastrous. Um, and, you know, he's not the only one who's, who's made these kind of comments before. Yeah, that's maybe what I would expect the Pope to say about any emerging technology or, you know, trend in society. I wonder what he's speaking about more specifically. I mean, can well, you expand he, he on ha- that? He has been deep faked. So, um, you know, it, it probably hits home. I mean, we had that image floating around the Internet of the Pope in a luxury white puffer that yes. looks very, very real. And, you know, I mean, it, it's probably he's taking it a little personally. That's a good reminder. And he was rocking it, too. If you Google <laughs> AI puffer coat Pope, you'll see how fabulous the Pope could look. <laughs> but I mean, the, but but the scary part is then if somebody put words in his mouth, if he said something about the war in Israel and Gaza, uh, that could really have ramifications. Yeah, or really just about anything. I mean, uh, if you're a public figure, especially one with with so much influence and, you know, someone that for a lot of people is considered to be a moral compass, you want to make sure that, you know, what you're saying is what you're saying. Talk to me about the Tesla recall. Well, I... 
Tesla is recalling just about all of the vehicles it's sold in the U.S. It amounts to about 2 million cars and trucks uh, to do a software update and fix a defective system that's supposed to make sure that drivers are actually paying attention when they're using autopilot. Um, you know, Tesla's have these self-driving features, uh, but U.S. safety regulators are, you know, uh, worried that, you know, people aren't paying attention as much as they should. And the update is designed to increase warnings and alerts and make sure that, you know, people are are still on the ball when they're behind the wheel. Tesla doing okay, is it generally? Yeah, I mean, the the problem is, is that, you know, no computer, no system is perfect. Uh, People can't really be eliminated at this point. True self-driving cars are still a ways off. So, you know, what this... Uh, software fix will do is limit the situations where autopilot can be used. But not all Tesla's are a self-driving feature, right? I mean, those are electric cars. Some have self-driving technology, some don't. Is that right? There are different levels to this. I mean, it, definitely there ha- there's been a rollout of more features over, you know, in recent years. But um, this is going into just about every car on the road right now in the U.S., so whatever you think of Elon Musk, and for a lot of people, it's not it's not good. That's not hurting his brand, or his brand isn't hurting his sales. Um, you know, <laughs> Tesla's. Um, you know, they they've cut prices recently to just kind of you know make it up on volume to get more people uh, behind the wheel of their cars. And yeah, like I don't think people necessarily associate him with the vehicle brand as much as they do with with Twitter or X or SpaceX and the, you know, a little more wacky companies that he runs. TikTok is banned in Texas or is going to be banned? Well, uh, Texas wants to, like a lot of states and a lot of countries, including our federal government, keep it off of um, state employee phones. Um, These are work phones. These aren't personal phones. Uh, But a court challenge was filed uh, federally by uh, free speech groups that, you know, they're they're saying that if you put these kind of restrictions in place, it it could impinge on on free speech rights. And specifically, they're looking at college professors in Texas who, you know, they're technically state employees. But, you know, when it comes to uh, assignments and grading things, they use their phones for work. But you know, TikTok is a, po- is a part of a lot of academic programs these days. So it's a question of how you handle that. But a federal judge in Texas has upheld the state's TikTok ban on official devices. Yeah, yeah he's saying that this doesn't impinge on free speech rights. And, you know, they're not saying you can't do it on your personal phone or on other devices. It's just work phones. Um, you know, and this kind of tracks with what's been going on at the federal level and the state level. Governments are, you know, legitimately concerned. A lot of people would say that, you know, because TikTok is, has ties or is, you know, partially controlled by the Chinese government, that data, that information, things could be siphoned off from user phones. So there is a national security worry there. One last question that um, you may not have an answer to, and that's okay. Is there an app or a tech toy or gift that you love this year? Is there something that you hope to get or give? Maybe your kids want some techie gadget that mom knows all about. Uh, well, my you know, my kids, they're, yeah, they're definitely very 
social media oriented. Um, my daughter, she started running. She, I got her an Apple Watch for her birthday a couple months ago. Um, I do have a new sample of an AI robot that um, I'm very excited to start building and programming. I'm not sure how much my my younger son is going to be into it, but I'm hoping he will he will do that with me. But you know, oddly, the kids haven't asked for a lot of tech this year. An AI robot, so uh, it would be a robot that then what you're going to say um, dance like Fred Astaire or something, and then I, I don't I don't know what an AI robot means. Well, this is one of those things that I'm I'm going to you know journalism <laughs> investigate and figure out, but. It, you have to actually physically build the robot, and then it uses uh, chat GPT-like software to follow commands and things like that. So, yeah, I think a lot of it is going to be voice-controlled and activated. Really interesting. Um, feel free to tell us how that goes down the road. Until then, thanks for joining us today. Thanks a lot. It wasn't that long ago that we talked a little bit about AI this way, that it helps some employees more than another. I want to just go into a little more detail on this story with Aki Ito, a senior correspondent at Business Insider. Aki, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So uh, just give me the nutshell on this. If a business is using AI in some capacity, maybe to streamline correspondence or do research, who does it help? Who does it not help? So there have been a lot of academic studies uh, looking at the uh, effect of generative AI on professional workers over this past year. And um, all the studies are showing something really interesting, which is that it helps the people who are performing at the lowest level, but it doesn't help the people who are performing at the highest level. So it's, it's helping people who are inexperienced, you know, who are um, kind of younger, uh, but it's not helping. And sometimes it's even actually hindering the superstars. How so? How would it hurt a high achiever? You know, that's a really good question. And, you know, the the economists who study this only have hypotheses, you know, they're not entirely sure. But when you think about how generative AI tools like ChatGPT work, like, you know, you're basically like, you know, taking at all the information out there, and then you're kind of spitting out an average, right? So it, it, it intuitively does make sense that, you know, it would definitely boost the low performers, but right. um, it might even kind of, you know, serve to drag down some of those high performers as well. Well, it might level the playing field is what I'm hearing you say. I wonder how the employer feels about that. Um, do they care that maybe the person with fewer skills or maybe not as great a work ethic is now being boosted where the person who has the skills and the ethic doesn't need it. They're already maxing out. I, I wonder how the employer feels about that. Oh, I mean, the employer loves it because yeah. it's, you know, definitely improving the, uh, you know, the average level of performance across the workforce. Um, and they would love it even more because, you know, the the people who, you know, have less experience, you know, who have, uh, you know, maybe fewer credentials, uh, you can pay them cheaper salaries. So it's a huge cost-saving measure for sure. Okay. Well, the salaries now makes it a little more interesting still. That is, um, how does this impact the salary of the workforce if we're using AI? Yeah. So I think that's a really good question. And, you know, when we talk about, like, 
you know, this concept of leveling the playing field. That sounds really good, right? Like we, most of us want a more equal economy. Uh, Most of us recognize that, you know, things have gotten a little out of hand over the last few decades. Um, But it's also possible that if you boost the low performers, you know, you end up kind of lowering the wages of people at the top without doing very much to help the people at the bottom. Um, And there is some empirical research out there based on um, the freelancer job market that does suggest that this is actually what's happening, that, you know, you drag down the wages of the people at the top so much that overall you end up dragging everybody's wages down. I wonder what a field or an example of that would be. I have one in mind, but do you have an example of how in a specific kind of workplace that would happen? I mean, I'll go back to that, um, you know, empirical study I just mentioned. Um, So this looked at uh, the freelancer job market and the part of the job market that seemed to take the biggest hit was um, illustrators. Um, You know, think of uh, tools like Dali, you know, that um, generate these illustrations, you know, (laughs) over the course of just like a few seconds. Um, And uh, it it found that the, the top performing illustrators uh, saw their earnings decline by about 14% over the course of, you know, maybe just over a year or so. Um, and so that does go to show, you know, uh, people who have these jobs um, that are very susceptible to the the, the current um, capabilities of generative AI, uh, you know, they, they could see some pretty severe negative consequences. So I'm a talented uh, illustrator. I'm a good artist and I work quick and I've got a good eye. Um, somebody with fewer skills with a good computer can ask it to do what I'm doing. And now we don't need to pay me the premium price, right? Yeah, exactly. And and maybe still, you know, the AI program um, or that, you know, very novice illustrator using the AI program doesn't, you know, create an illustration that's quite as good as what you're making as the superstar. But for a lot of employers, like good enough is it's okay, you know, and if, you know, this computer program is creating something that's good enough, maybe they'll think like, do I really need to pay this like superstar three times as much? Um, you know, when I could have, you know, somebody very inexperienced using this AI program to make it for me. Um, This is becoming an issue in the animated film industry. I know it's a conversation they're having about the artists Mm -hmm. that they have to pay to draw the cells and make the movies or ask a computer to generate some of that artwork. Um, So I, I can see the ramifications of that, but maybe this will be true too, that the same way we're using fewer fossil fuels the economy is transitioning, maybe these jobs will transition. That is, the premium skill won't be, are you good with a free hand? But it might be, are you really good with software? That's a whole new skill set. So um, I, I, I guess what I'm saying is that there might be um, some changes in the workplace, but ones that aren't random or even unfair. Rather, you just need to kind of get with the times. That's the way. It, that's small consolation for a superstar illustrator. But uh, economies and industries change. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think if you're a worker worried about this, you know, the 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 number one thing that you want to be thinking about is how do I get better at the things that computers can't do yet? There's still tons of things that generative AI is really bad at still. 
So I think the key is like figuring out like what what are these programs still not good at doing and how do I get better at that? Yeah, but I would also advise this. I'm out over my skis here, but I would also advise, but also get good at AI. That is, don't divorce yourself of the technology that's going to challenge you, but rather embrace it and then try and distinguish yourself, right? I think that is true in some cases, but, uh, you know, in in a lot of cases, I think, you know, employers are trying to take the worker out of AI altogether. So in those cases, like, what's what's the point of even getting good at it if, like, you know, you're out of the picture altogether? I'm, I'm thinking, for example, like a call center worker, you know, for now, like, it's there are, like, certain, um, you know, employers that are using AI in a way that uh, complements the skills of these call center workers. And for them, it definitely pays to get better at using that technology, well, but at a different employer, like, you know, they're not using that call center. They're not, you know, they want to take the human out of the equation altogether. There's, there's no point in the worker learning how to use the yeah, program. No kidding. They're not well, going to have a job at all. Uh, one last thing though, Aki, when I'm uh, talking to a chat bot, I pretty much expect I'm talking to a computer program now, but if I'm talking to some somebody over my phone, I assume that's a human being. Do you think I am now or will soon be having a verbal conversation with a company and it's not a human being that I'm talking to? You know, it's, it's, I mean, I think the technology will be there, but I think there are some like ethical uh, considerations here. I think customers would be pretty mad if they thought they were talking to a human, but in fact, they were talking to a machine. So I would suspect that most companies would be upfront about that and, and tell you that okay. they were connecting you to an Sure. Program. So disclosure would be part of that. But you know, just the same way now you get the option to hit a chat bot. Maybe it will be, do you want to talk, do you want to write to a chat bot or talk to a chat bot or wait four hours and 37 minutes to talk to a person. <laughs> and I might mm-hmm. try the middle one. I, I don't know. That's um, kind of a, the, the mind reels when you begin to think about the opportunities and pitfalls of AI. And they're writing about it in Business Insider. At businessinsider.com, AI helps unskilled employees on the job, hurts experienced workers. Aki Ito, interesting story. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's time for more business news. Here's Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. The Macy's building on State Street has landed a new tenant for the offices above the store. The building's located at State in Washington. Cranes reports Argo Group, a specialty insurance company, has signed a lease for about 20,000 square feet of space on the ninth floor. Argo will move into the space early next year. The Macy's building is 61% leased, and other tenants include Ticket Marketplace Vivid Seats, Numerator, Spot, and Candy Maker Ferrero North America. Automaker Rivian has signed a new contract to supply electric vehicles to AT&T. The company with a manufacturing plant in downstate Normal will supply AT&T with its commercial van. The number of vehicles it will supply hasn't been disclosed. The value of the deal also hasn't been disclosed. Rivian has a previous contract with Amazon for 100,000 of the vans that will be delivered by 2030. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. Business of food time. Here's Steve Alexander. Thank you, and we just heard a day or two ago that one of the hottest jobs in America right now pays about 80 grand a year, no college degree needed. 
what it is after I thank the Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com for sponsoring us. There has never been a better time to put a Silverado in your toolbox. Okay, one of the hottest jobs right now is wind turbine technician. You know, the people who climb 300 feet up those huge turbine towers and fix things. Not for everybody, but 80 grand a year if you don't mind enduring extreme weather and confined spaces. Meanwhile, the wind power industry, a green industry, those huge Huge blades that are spinning on farm fields all over the Midwest, when they wear out or break, they're not recyclable. Well, I mean, poorly recyclable, I would say. That's John Dorgan, a chemical engineering and materials science researcher at Michigan State University. He says the problem is the blades are made of fiberglass formed with petroleum-based epoxy, which cannot be reused. So the blades that crash or just wear out are usually buried in landfills. Not very green. Dorgan came up with a better idea, using recyclable thermoplastics, which come from corn, to make the blades, and then when they wear out... We can really have all kinds of -of end-of-life options. The simplest one is grind up the wind turbine, uh, add some more plastic to it, and now you have a, a material that can be can be shaped. You can do all sorts of things. Household appliances or computer housings or bumpers on cars. And another process will turn the former wind turbine blades into plexiglass and many things like taillights, even countertops. But wait, there's more. Continuing the recycling process can result in... Baby diapers. And... Gummy bear candies. So, bottom line, by using the Michigan State formula for building the fully recyclable turbine blades. We can recover two different types of polymers, one which is plexiglass, uh, the other which is a super absorbency for diapers. And then finally, uh, we can recover a food-grade material. And a bonus to the turbine makers, these are cheaper than the petroleum-based ones out there now. Do you ever wonder how these men and women with big brains come up with this kind of stuff? I think there's a famous quote from Thomas Edison. How do you you have so many good ideas? He said, well, I just have a lot of ideas. So (laughs) I think I'm in the same situation. Most of them are kind of, you know, a little bit harebrained. But every now and then, you know, they work out. John Dorgan, a researcher at Michigan State, trying to help make green energy even greener. On the food calendar, it's National Bolia Base Day. Yum. I'm Steve Alexander. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. You're listening to WGN Radio's Your Hometown Series, sponsored by McDonald's. Tag along as we explore the village of Lamont and show you why it should be your hometown. Jason Berry is the Economic and Community Development Director in the village of Lamont. Hey, Jason, it's John. Welcome to the show. Hey, John. Happy to be here. So we've uh, all heard of Lamont. A lot of us kind of live not too far from there or have. But uh, the numbers are town of about 17,000, very diverse, uh, built around a quarry. Uh, and that's part of the history. And and Argonne National Laboratory is there now, too, right? That's right. Yeah, Lamont has always been an entrepreneurial, industrialist place. Um, from Argonne, other places in the energy sector, such as Sitco, right on our border. And um, it continues to attract entrepreneurs. And we're very proud of all the small business as well, the women-owned business in town. Um, our downtown continues to grow and go from strength to strength. So you're an economic development director. So are you fishing for big businesses or just trying to boost Main Street? How do you do what you do? Yeah, we're open for every opportunity, of course. Um, Lamont, though, is very proud to be a, a place to start your business, a mom-and-pop shop. Um, again, when um, we look to our downtown, we look at those little entrepreneurs that are looking to 
a lot of them open their first business, be it in retail, uh, food and beverage, uh, lifestyle, wellness. We're uh, happy to you know, bring them into the village and give them all the tools they need to succeed. So are you competing in that way with uh, Romeoville and Bolingbrook and Joliet? And I'm just going up and down 55 here in my head. Uh, what, who, who's the competition or, or how's business for you guys? Business has been great. Um, just judging by downtown over the past year, we've had over 1.1 million visits to our downtown in the past 12 months. Um, so we have very dedicated uh, fans of downtown. A lot of them are coming locally. Um, you know, most of our customers, about 60% of our customers live within 10 miles of, of, of Lamont, and they're very loyal. Many of them are visiting us, you know, four times a year, spending time, over two hours' time in, in downtown. And they tend to be an affluent customer. The average household income here is 116000 and uh, over a quarter of Lamont consumers have household incomes over 150000 I did not realize that. <laughs> that's, that's uh, I don't know if that's North Shore numbers, but that's uh, surprisingly high to me. It is pretty good, and that's why, you know, we want to be part of this hometown series, is we need to get the word out there that this is a good place to open your business. You're going to succeed here, and you're going to have success, um, not only with support from the village, but with support from the community and our neighbors. Is there something that is a village you would like to see the city, the state, the federal government, uh, WGN Radio do? I mean, what, what's going to help your town continue to be prosperous? You know, one of the things um, that is always a challenge is uh, property taxes. Uh, Lamont is in Cook County. Uh, I love being a resident of Cook County, but, you know, that's always a question when I go out to, say, uh, a shopping center show or we're talking to, um, you know, the commercial real estate community. The differences between Cook County property taxes and where uh, Lamont's located, right on the border of DuPage and Will County, can sometimes be a competitive disadvantage. The real estate community might look at uh, potential property taxes in Cook County compared to our neighbors and be a little shy of investment. So far, we'd be able to counter that by, you know, being smart about using um, TIF districts and the like to be more competitive. Um, but that's something we're always looking at, and we're always countering, especially with commercial brokers that are coming in from, say, Oak Brook or Naperville, and um, the, that reluctance. Jason Berry is the Economic and Community Development Director at Lamont. Also an author, right, of a book? Didn't you put a book out about Lamont? I did, yes. I am the co-author of a book um, in the Images of America series, simply titled Lamont. It's available everywhere books are sold. And uh, co-authored that with Kevin Barron of South Cook Explorer fame. And again, on the economic development side, hey, it's a great way to look back and see the impact that the sanitary and ship canal, the quarry industry, the transportation industry, Argonne's in the book, Sitco's in the book, uh, our small businesses are in the book. So it's a great way to see that Lamont has always had this entrepreneurial spirit going back to the 1830s, 1850s. Isn't the limestone from Chicago's uh, water tower from Lamont? Yeah, we're very proud of that. So in the uh, 1870s, Lamont quarries were a booming industry, and uh, they would quarry the stone here locally, uh, put it on a canal boat on the I&M Canal, and uh, ship that down to uh, Chicago. So Holy Name Cathedral, the Stockyard Gate, in addition to, of course, the water tower, are all uh, local Lamont limestone. So get the book in the Images of America series. It's called Simply Enough Lamont. 
And Jason Berry is the Economic and Community Development Director there. Really interesting, Jason. Thanks for your help today. Yeah, appreciate the time, John.